Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10. It reads, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Arxaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in its ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to God of heaven, I replied, if it, pleases, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judea to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asa, the manager of the king's force, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sanbelt and Horat and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Brief prayer. God, thank you for your word again. Thank you for your spirit that illuminates the scriptures to us to understand. Just pray for this time, Lord, that it's honoring to you. We thank you again for this place of worship. We thank you for the lives and the families that it represent ultimately for your glory. God, we continue to pray for the churches that proclaim your name, for the services they've had and the service that they will have today, Lord. Thank you that we are a small part of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you. Also, as we dive into your word, will you prepare our hearts now for communion and just speak to us. Thank you that we get to receive communion because of the ultimate sacrifice of your son. So, Lord, I pray that you use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So, last week we entered the second section of the Ezra-Nehemiah series, and we were talking about a calling, being called, and God has a calling in our lives and at first, we, we talked about how first God calls people to himself, salvation. He calls them. He, he wants them. He wants every single person on earth to be with him, to accept the free gift of salvation. That's the first calling. Then the second calling, and it can either happen right away at that, or, or perhaps for many of us, it takes a little bit longer for it to take place. But the second calling is is. Lordship, for God to be the Lord of your life. Not that he just saves you, but now you recognize and understand that he is indeed your Lord, and you can trust him with your life here on earth, not just when you get to heaven. And then we talked about other callings, being called to being a mother, a father, your job, and where to live and all that. But then another calling is also what you do 
how you serve the Lord, a call to serving the Lord. And really, at the, at the heart of it, as I was thinking about it this week, it's really a calling to serve the Lord is linked to calling to join in the Great Commission, which is to make disciples. That is what we're called to do. Go into all the world and make disciples. So whenever we're looking to see what God is calling us to do, a question we can ask is, what is my role in making disciples? What is my role? What does that look like? How does that play out? If I may fill in the blank, whatever your job is, how can I make disciples? Just to be clear, I think I said it last week, and just, just to be clear, a, a call to serve the Lord is not a call to full-time ministry. It can be. I like it. But it could be a call to make disciples right where you're at. And that's a calling. I mean, if, if you really look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a general contractor by accident. He's actually a cupbearer. He's really good with people, but he ends up being a general contractor, and he builds walls and a fortress. That's his job, but his calling is way more than that. His calling is to make disciples along the way. So whatever it is that you do in life, you are called to make a disciple, maybe one, maybe a hundred, whatever it looks like. And ultimately, it's to bring God glory. The reason God made us is to bring Him glory. When you surrender your life, I truly believe you get to see the joy of bringing Him glory. Now, some of us, or some of you, sometimes we kick and scream a little bit as we're bringing Him glory. We're rough. Actually, we're all rough at some point until Christ gets a hold of our heart. Then if you notice, every day you have to surrender your life to Christ. But a surrendered life is working on to the Lord, and that's where you see the joy. And as you are working through the calling to join in the Great Commission to make disciples, one of the questions was brought up last week that I think applies today is, what breaks your heart? What stirs your heart? What are you naturally, normally inclined to do, to care for? It's interesting that God puts into our hearts at a very young age gifts and abilities that we notice. Think of your children or your grandchildren at such a young age, and you could already see those who are way compassionate, those who are really good with their hands. I think I mentioned last week, not only are they good at taking apart their toys, they're good at putting them back together. God already has blessed each and every one of us with different gifts and abilities that come natural. And within that, with a surrendered life, there are things that will pop up and break your heart. Start there for a calling. What breaks your heart? Perhaps maybe it's someone on the job site and you're working shoulder to shoulder with him. Does that person break your heart? That could be your calling. A calling to serve the Lord is, is a lifetime, but the callings within that could change. It could be from one job to the next job. It could be from serving somewhere to serving somewhere else. But last week, as we were talking about someone who, who mentions, the, someone last week after I had talked, we were talking about the difference between being called to do something by God and then when someone asks you to help out. I mean, for a while as we were preparing to move into the building, we had sign-up sheets for people to serve in the children's ministry. 
And yes, we ask you to sign up for it. Someone called you. But there are people who then felt called to take on a, more of a leadership role. Now, just to be clear, if you see someone drop a stack of papers, don't walk by and say, well, the Lord didn't call me to help. That broom doesn't fit my hand. Whatever it is. Sorry, I can't help you. God has not called me. I'll sit here and wait. God's calling all of us. And a calling, one thing I've noticed specifically about a calling is it, it may be that some of you have had a calling, have been considering it last week by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and then by Monday you told the Holy Spirit, shh, not right now, i got to work. I call it nibbling at your calling. Because you know in your heart what breaks your heart. It's not too difficult. And maybe it's been so long that you haven't paid attention to it. You're still nibbling at your calling. God is so faithful, so patient with us. I'm so glad that God is more patient than me, than you. And I think part of it is one of the reasons why nibbling at a calling, it's scary. What, what is it going to cost me? Oswald Chambers wrote a little book called The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read it, read it. But be warned, it's challenging. The Cost of Discipleship, and, and partly, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but what he says is sometimes we don't want to ask or get involved because we're afraid of the obligation. I want to work through it on my own, Oswald Chambers says. I want to do this or do that. I have a lot of questions, but I don't want to sign my life away. I mean, part of youth group, one of the things when, when youth group was looking for leaders is one of the questions that Marcus and Jody and others had received is, well, how long is the commitment? Forever. <laughs> well, give it a try. Maybe it's not for you. There's nothing wrong with going out on a limb and saying, maybe this is where God's calling me in two, three, four, five days in, five opportunities you find that God is just using that to refine what really the calling is. But a warning about a calling, and we'll see this with Nehemiah here. A calling is what God usually does in an individual. Sometimes it's a, it's a couple of people, but usually it starts with an individual. And then the calling of the other people to join in on whatever it is, whatever ministry, whatever making disciple looks like. However, a calling is not, you have this burden, your heart is broken, and then you go tell someone else to do it. You notice back in Nehemiah 1, when he hears from his brother, his brother says, he says, hey, how is everything going in Jerusalem? And his brother said, not great. We don't have any walls. The people have kind of turned away. It's really rough. You notice that Nehemiah didn't say, oh, my heart is broken. Brother, when you go back, what are you going to do about it? And this is not a cry for help from me. Maybe it is. But there's quite a few times people have strongly suggested what I should do as a pastor. You know what you should do? No, you please tell me, what should I do? But you know what? A lot of times... People have this calling in their life and they want to see it done, but they don't want to commit to it. So if any of you have this thing of what we should do, what I should do, what someone else should do, maybe it's you. 
So again, going back to Nehemiah 1, when his brother says this, he says, oh no. And he prays about it. His heart is stirred for it. He doesn't even know he's a general contractor. He's a cupbearer. Mentioned that last week. Whenever at the very end of one, it says, and I was a cupbearer, which means I have another job. I'm the third highest command position in this palace. I'm a big deal, just ask me. But he's moved. But then he doesn't say, you know what you should do? He says, you know what I should do is I should get on my knees and I should pray for this. This ministry. And that's, what, that's really what a calling is, is God is inviting us to join him and he wants us to start by praying, praying it through. And then go and work through it. So a few things that, that we read, and we've only read, of, read half of Nehemiah 2, we'll, we'll touch on some other parts, and then next week as we continue on 3, we'll tie it together. And what you'll notice is I'll keep going back to all the times that he prayed, because Nehemiah, throughout the book of Nehemiah, we'll see 12 major times he's prayed, and they're really good prayers. And for those of us who sometimes stumble and think, man, I keep praying the same prayer every time. Nehemiah's prayers is a good place. Psalms is a good place. So a couple of things that stood out to me as I was going through this. The first one is Nehemiah was prayed up. He was prayed up. The second one is he was honest. And in parentheses, he didn't take the out. We'll talk about that. He was prayed up. He was honest. He didn't take the out. Next one, he was prepared. The last one, real opposition. And again, we'll jump back to prayer, but let's take a look at the first two verses. It says, Nehemiah, the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Arxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence, so the king asked me, Why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. Uh Uh-oh. Why was he deeply terrified? It was a rule that you were not allowed to show any sad, hurt emotions at all in front of the king, or he could immediately have you executed. So no mopey faces, please. So he was deeply troubled because he was deeply terrified. He was worried. Oh, this is my job. I'm not supposed to be sad. And I would imagine in his mind, he says, well, this is it. I'm going to lose my head. But even before that happens, in verse 1, it says, early in the following spring in the month of Nisan, which is about four or five months later after his brother told him that that the uh, walls were torn down, was burnt down. He had this, and we read he, he had fasted, he had prayed, oh, Lord, what, what do you want me to do about this? My heart is broken. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the king asked him, have you ever prayed for something and then was surprised the way in which God used to show you something? I'm really, I'm certain that Nehemiah did not think, Well, this is not how you were supposed to answer it. I'm not supposed to have a pouting face. But he had prayed and he fasted for four or five months and he was asking. And and what I've noticed too is during this time, four or five months, we turn the page, we don't see any affirmation. We don't see any encouragement along the way. 
We don't, we don't hear that God sent a prophet to Nehemiah to encourage him saying, one day it will come. We simply turn the page and it's four or five months later and all of a sudden here's his opportunity. If you spend any time in the Bible, you will notice that God calls someone to something and then has them wait. I know that's been my experience. Well, just think of Abraham. He called Abraham. You're going to have Abraham, many sons. Well, his wife wasn't even pregnant. David, you are going to be the king. I'm 15. Noah, build the ark. Well, when is it going to rain? Don't worry about it. Build the ark. Mary Joseph, you're going to bring the Messiah in. Wait, what? Paul, he's called by God, blinded by God, brought back to life to God. Then he goes in the wilderness for about three and a half years to study. God many times answers our prayers and our questions we present to him by experience. Although he does answer some of our prayer requests miraculously or by divine intervention through someone, even if it's small, even if it's ridiculous. The other day, we, every time Nellie and I and the kids go to the park and we see ducks, there's always a story, and it's a miraculous story, but it's so pathetic it's so silly. When Ryder was two, he's not in here. He's in the kids, so ha. When he was, when he was two years old, Natalie and him went to go, they went to the park to go feed the ducks, and Natalie accidentally forgot the bread. And as any good two-year-old boy does, he threw a fit because there was no bread to feed the ducks. So Natalie said, well, maybe we'll just pray. Let's pray. And they prayed, and Prayed that Ryder would feel better, and they said amen, and then miraculously, no lie, a piece of bread, whole bread, fell from the sky. What? A bird dropped it. Don't, God didn't throw it down. Maybe. And there it was. And to that two-year-old, God answered the biggest problem of his life of that day. But think about it. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God throws bread from the sky. But sometimes... Most of the time, we have to see his answers through an experience with him. Partly, this experience is to show us that there is a journey and a relationship with him. So that way, we can be reassured that not only is he just some God, but that he is a God that loves us and cares for us. And not just what we do for him, but because we're his children. And in this waiting, in this experience, it's reassuring our faith. It's challenging, make no mistake about it. But just like raising children, you don't do everything for them, do you? Even though sometimes it'd just be easier. But you walk alongside them. And when there is something that they cannot handle, you throw in a hand and help them out. And this is Nehemiah's experience. And one of the things that I really appreciate is how Nehemiah was praying this whole time. And then I really appreciate, he says, long live the king, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And he says, how can I help you? And he says, with a prayer to God of heaven in verse 4. It's because he had been praying. He didn't say, hold on, I'm going to go pray about it. I would imagine it was more one of those, oh, God, help me, prayers. See, again, 
Something had happened in Nehemiah that he was sad, and something had happened that the king noticed, and something had happened that the king noticed and didn't say, well, you're sad, off with your head. Nehemiah then was, oh, my, the Lord's work, what's, I'm so surprised. It's like when you pray to God that he's going to do something, and when he starts to do something, you're so surprised as if you didn't believe he was going to do it. And one of the things that I appreciated, though, is that the king was willing to listen to him because Nehemiah clearly submitted to his authority. Now, that's hard. Working for a pagan king, working for a non-believer, submitting to his authority. And I know for some of us, the immediate response is, I will submit to him as long as he doesn't go against God. And blah, 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 blah. Yes, correct. But you still have to submit to his authority. And he did. He was the king bearer, or the cup bearer to the king. I believe it was his due diligence of doing what was right to the king day in and day out, even after his calling gave him this opportunity. He was faithful in the small things. He believed that God would answer his prayer. He just didn't know when. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. He's the first guy that really got missions into China, and he wrote a book about the challenges of starting a new ministry in a new country in a new language, and one of the things that he wrote about was about prayer, and he said, I am convinced and have learned that it is possible to move men through prayer alone without any worldly tactics of anger or intimidation. Prayer alone moves men. So I would imagine that during this four and five month period that Nehemiah was praying not only that he could do what he felt God was calling him to do, but he was also praying for the king. He was also praying for his brothers. He was also praying for an opportunity. He believed in prayer. And God has worked in his heart, but he didn't know when it was going to happen And that's the case with Nehemiah. He was simply there being faithful to the last thing God had called him to do, to be the cupbearer. And he prayed and he fasted and he prayed and he prepared and he had nothing more than a calling. Have you ever had nothing more than a calling? You just felt stirred in your heart to do something and that's all you had. And again, it's just a burden in your heart that you can't shake. And even as much as you try try to quiet it down, maybe later in the middle of the night, that's stirring. Now imagine that you prayed and what that four-month period looked like for him. And I just can't shake this, God. I know you want me to do this. I feel a calling, but I'm a cupbearer. I think this is what you want me to do. But how am I going to do it? Why did you call me to something and then leave me alone? Why did you call me something and keep me in this job? His heart didn't get cold. It's real easy to get your heart cold when God doesn't answer your prayer. Because then when your heart gets cold, you start blaming other people. Well, this king, or this situation, or this church, or this job, or this wife, or this husband, or these kids, or these... It's always someone else's fault. Or, for some of us, it's all my fault. I'm no good. Why would God use me? See, if I would have prayed two minutes longer, if I would have read my Bible five minutes longer, has anyone ever had this conversation with himself? 
If only I would have, it comes back to you. And again, have you noticed again that prayers have this delay in response and it's called waiting. It is in this waiting that we learn really about ourselves. We learn about God. And again, that's when we can fall into the trap and then make deals with God. God, if you speed up this process, I got you. I will join that nursery. Or then we start believing the lies of Satan, the enemy. And he questions you. Did God really call you? You you think you're good enough? Really? Have you seen you? Or even the quieter whispers, God doesn't even like you. You were wrong. So this whole battle, that's why we have to be on our knees when we're working through this calling. Again, God calls us to salvation to himself. He calls us to trust that he is Lord, and then he calls us to, be, to make disciples in the world all the time that Satan's yelling in our ear, we're not good enough. Think about Nehemiah. You work for the pagan king of the world. You really think God's going to use you? And delays in, in prayer help us cling to God more or run away from him. Imagine if God answered prayers immediately every time. Dear God, I pray for a car. Bing. Dear God, I pray that I get out of this situation. Teleport. A couple of things that I wrote down, and this is just me, and you can fill out your own list. If God answered every single prayer that I ever ask, here's a couple of things that would potentially happen. I would be wrong on most of my prayers. I'm so thankful for all the prayers God did not answer when I was a teenager. Holy smokes. The second is we would treat God like a genie, which then would lead us that we would stop depending on the person of God and more on his stuff. And then, I know me, I would pray less. I would simply put in my Amazon wish list order on Sunday night and be happy for the rest of the week. I would check in less. I would love him less. I would no longer depend on him. I would just want his stuff. Then I would start to think that I'm God. And last thing I put is I would probably end up praying for people less. You can come up with your own list if God answered your prayers like a genie. See, God is not trying to keep you from the best. God is taking us to a journey to him which is the best. Experiencing God's love is the best thing we could ever have. Trusting in him, living in him, that is what is best. One of the primary roles, jobs, as a pastor, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. It's part of my job. It's a big portion of my job. And part of equipping followers of Christ is simply to remind you that your first love is and should be Christ. That's the warning that we see in Revelation. You've lost. It really, should tran- it really translate. you have removed your first love. You have abandoned your first love. It's part of one of my jobs that I've come to realize is to continue to point to God and encourage you to love him more and more, all while I'm trying to do that myself. 
And while you're doing that, then you can live out the Great Commission, go into the world and create disciples. And we'll talk about that more, number two. I'm, I'm not here to twist your arm. Hey, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. I'm simply trying to point to God. All the pastors around the world should, one of the main jobs is point to God and say, love that guy, love the God. And it's in that love that we will see our journey with him grow and mature. So he was prayed up. We talked about that. He was prayed up. And in verse two and four, he was honest and he didn't take the out. Let's take a look at that verse two. It says, so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. I haven't seen you thrown up. You must be deeply troubled. And he says, I was terrified. Nehemiah says, I was terrified. Verse three, but I replied, long live the king. Side note, that is always how you were supposed to respond to a king. If he asks you a question, long live the king, blah, blah, blah. If you approached him, long live the king, blah, blah, blah. If not, off with your head. Well, actually, you would be impelled. <laughs> Way better. Um, but that was the introduction. It's like whenever <laughs> my experience at jury duty, yes, your honor, yes, your honor. Like you had to, yes, your honor. Uh, mm-hmm. So long live the king. So he still followed protocol. And then he said, how can I be, not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried and his ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? He was honest with what was going on and he did not take the out. I have noticed this more and more in my life and I've seen it in other people's life. You feel called, you're stirred, you're moved with emotion, you feel like God is calling you, you're prayed up and then when the moment happens, there's always an out. I can always get out of this, get out of jail free card. I don't want to do this. I'm scared. And it's the whole reason why is because we're having that doubt and we're not worthy, we're not good enough. Honestly, Nehemiah, how many of us in here would have said, no, I'm good, just a bit of allergies? He was honest. And he didn't take the out. He was honest about how he was feeling. He had an out. He didn't take it. Again, it's been my experience. We've seen this through the Bible. Through all the people, there's an out. There's a way to get out. You're called to do something for the Lord, regardless if it's a short season, a long season, a period of waiting, a period of praying. You wait for your opportunity. Something happens, and then all of a sudden, I'm good. No, thanks. And then there was a second one. Did you notice that there was a second out? Not only was there an out whenever he said, what's wrong with you? The, the, verse four, it says, then the king asked, well, how can I help you? It would have been, okay, maybe I could say what was wrong, but how can I help you? I'm good. Pray for me. There will be an opportunity time and time again First of all, not be honest of our calling, what God's put burden on, our, burden on our heart. And then there'll be an opportunity when someone says, how can I help? We'll say, I got this. I think I mentioned last week and probably several times, who here has tried to move a couch all by themselves? The second chance, what can I do to help? The king that controlled the entire known world said, what can I do to help? Can you imagine Nehemiah saying, ah, nothing. I'm good. Why do we do that? Why does that happen? One of the things that I think we do is we rationalize. This is my calling, not your calling. I don't want to burden you. 
I don't want to call you up to see if you will help me because if you say no, I will be devastated. Or if I call and ask for help, uh, are you busy? Who here has ever talked themselves out of calling someone because you made up some crazy thing they were doing? And pride, I don't need help. I got this. I'm a man or a woman. God called me and he will provide supernaturally. I will get buff and move this couch by myself. Thank you very much. I will get toe straps before I call someone and then drop it and break it in half. True story. Why are you laughing? Because I have toe straps or I dropped it? No, I'm kidding. But God will provide for me supernaturally. It's the whole comic skit. I, it was popular in the 90s. If you weren't around, sorry. If you were too old, sorry. But if you're around 40, maybe you'll remember it. But there was a skit going around that youth groups used to do at camps and different things. And it basically went like this. The whole comic is this guy is stuck on a roof because it's flooding and the water's coming up. So he runs up to the roof and then he's at the very top of his chimney and he's praying to God, God, get me out of this. I'm going to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then all of a sudden he hears a man on a boat yelling, hey, come on, get in the boat. I'll save you. No, thanks. I'm waiting on God. Then all of a sudden, God, get me out of here, get me out of here, get me out of here. All of a sudden, a helicopter comes with a little rope ladder. You climb on, I'll fly you to safety. No thanks, I'm waiting on God. Then a helicopter takes off. God, get me out of here, get me out of here. I'm waiting on you, Lord. Then all of a sudden, a voice from the sky says, I have helped you, I sent you a boat and a helicopter, get on. But what we want is like a, a hand-packaged way that we think God should do things. If he's going to call us individually, he should have an individualistic plan for us all laid out. It doesn't work that way. But pride prevents us from doing that. Notice that God uses ordinary things and ordinary people to get his work done. And you can rest assured that that is true because he's using me and he's using you. Ordinary people doing ordinary things, get on the boat. And this is not a trick. I think we have to be careful. This is not a trick. This, God's not trying to trick him to see if he gets out. This is just a confirmation. This is the redefining fire that works in our lives individually to help us confirm the burden of our hearts. Many times it takes this opportunity to say no to realize it's really a Yes. And a side note, if anyone's in here who has ever said, no, I'm good, and walked away from a calling that you felt yesterday, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's not too late to say yes. If you take time to pray through that calling again and asking God, hey, I know I walked away from it many years ago, many weeks ago, many days ago, will you put that spark in me? Because you know even if it's been several decades, if there's something that had, bur had a burden, had stirred your heart, it'll be there. Don't feel defeated. Part of it is when we're praying through that and we're asking God to work through that, part of what we're saying is, is what am I going to do in this moment for God's glory and not concentrate on all the things I should have done for his glory? This is all the things I wish I would have done. Man, if I, only I was 18 again, I would have. If I was only 70 years old, 
I would have, what can you do in this moment for God's glory, not what should you have done? We, we take ourselves out of the game, and God's saying, get, get in the game. And we're like, no, you remember I did that thing. God says, yes, I know, I forgave you, forgive yourself. Come on. And to be clear, the calling does not need to be this grand-scale calling. It doesn't need to be rebuilding walls around Jerusalem. Don't think a calling is only a calling if it's world-changing. Your calling may be only for one person, and that will change their world. Be cautious of being glory-seekers or stealers. God doesn't put up with that. I don't want to simply help in the nursery. If there are only three kids, I want to oversee a nursery of 200 kids and 40 volunteers and my name in spotlights. Well, 200 kids in the nursery sounds awful. I don't know why I wrote that, but, but you get the point. In verse 6 and 8, he was prepared. Here's the other thing, too. It's important. Once we get past getting out the get-out-of-the-way stage, when we have an out, he was prepared. Look at what happened. He says, the king asked, in verse 4, the king asked, well, how can I help you? That had to have been a shocker. Then with a prayer to God of heaven, oh, God, help me. Help me remember, really, what I imagine this prayer is, help me remember all of the prayers that I've already prayed, that I already know what's going on. And verse 5, if, he replied, if it pleases the king, and you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judea to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. He was prepared. He knew what, what it was. He had four and a half, five months to work through this. He knew what it was. He didn't say, I don't know. I wasn't ready. He says, help me. If it pleases you, if I've been good, help me rebuild this city, this ancestors. He was essentially asking, I know that the Jewish people throughout our history has been very rebellious to all of the kingdom, but would you help us rebuild it? So eventually, we won't get along anyways, but will you, will you supply it? And verse 6 says, and the king with the queen sitting beside him, it's in there because the king and the queen, the, most, the two most powerful people in the room, he is presenting his request, his plan, sitting there. How long will you be gone and when will you return? This is an obvious statement in the original language. It's a, it's a word of emphasis. I really like you and I hope you come back is essentially what he's saying. That really me- means that he has been so faithful. Nehemiah has been so faithful to a pagan king. Can you imagine that? Well, how long will it take and when will you come back, he asks. And he's prepared. He's prepared. I need time off, basically, and I need you to pay for it. It says, uh, verse 6, the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. It ends up being 12 years. And then eventually we'll see in Nehemiah 5 that he becomes the governor of that province. We'll wait for that. Verse 7, it says, I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter to address to Aspen, the manager of the forest, the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I need to take it to make beams for the gates of the temple, the fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. He's already thought about this. 
He was prepared that when God answers my prayer request, God stirred my heart, I'm praying about it. When he answers my prayer request, I'm going to be ready. How many times have God has answered a yes and you're like, well, I better get ready. I better pack my things. I didn't know vacation was coming tomorrow. Here we go. While I was reading through commentaries that mention mentioned a form of this. Two guys did. It says, as you are waiting on the Lord, ask this question of yourself. When the Lord answers this prayer, what will I do next? Because if you have that in mind, then you are anticipating he's going to answer it. If when God answers my prayer, I will be ready. I will know my next step. I will be prepared. And I'm not saying you will have everything completely figured out. But he knew that what he needed, he knew that if he just left to go do it, he would be attacked. That's why he asked letters, because he was going to have to cover three providences to get through it with three different governors who all didn't like Jewish people. So he needed a big fat sign that said, no, 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 you can't get me. And then he also got letters saying, oh yeah, give me all the wood that I need, the cedar wood. And even one for my house. At the end of verse 8, it says, And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. It's all about God. So verse 9, it goes on to the next point. So if he was prayed up, and he was honest, and he didn't take the out, and he was prepared, he knew what it would look like if God answered the question, then the last one is, when God calls you, there will be an attack. The enemy doesn't like you doing things for God. If you don't ever feel attacked, you're probably sitting on the sidelines right where the enemy wants you. So he gets the letter. He gets everything that he needs. He's getting ready to go. In verse 9, it says, When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. Notice he didn't even ask for that, but yet God providentially told the king, hey, he's going to need some people. It's one thing to be prepared, but God knows what the full scale of what you need. In verse 10, but when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite officials heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. By the time we get through Nehemiah, these two guys, you're not going to like at all. And then, if you're like me, you're going to start picturing just the evilness and the hot, just anger, and then you'll remember all the people who tried to prevent you from doing it. But just fair warning, these guys are going to start off as two people and then have armies tried to prevent. So, Nehemiah was prayed up. He was honest. He didn't take the two easy outs. He was prepared, and the attack came, and we'll talk about that. So this morning, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, ask yourself where, you're, where are you at on this journey of God's calling in your life? Perhaps one, maybe someone in here doesn't even have a relationship with Christ, and first stage is God's calling you to salvation. He's calling you to be with him. He's calling you for the forgiveness of sin through Jesus. Some of you in here are in the middle of your calling. That's great. 
Continue on. Some of you are in transition of a calling. Some of you have ignored a calling. Some of you are still working through the early stages of what a calling would be. First place to start is praying. Then be prepared for the out. Don't take it. Third, be prepared and ask yourself that question. When God answers this prayer request, if God answers this prayer request, my next step will be. And then finally, be prepared for the attack. Where are you at on this journey? Have you began this journey? We're going to receive communion. We're going to sing three more songs. Uh, Some guys are going to pass out communion, uh, just save the elements, and uh, we'll receive communion all together. There's no requirement to receive communion outside of the fact you must be a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But as you receive these communions, as we sing this song, as, as Tim and the rest of the worship team comes and leads us, ask God, hey, maybe it's been a while. What is it that you are asking me to do? Where in my job Where in my home, where can I be that I can be prepared to make a disciple? That's simply what it is. Nehemiah ends up being a contractor that builds the walls, that protects Jerusalem, that eventually our Lord Jesus Christ shows up in. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the fact that we can come and pray to you at any time and that we know we need to be prayed up up and we need to ask people to pray, Lord, will you, will you work in our lives wherever we're at on the stage? I first and foremost pray for anyone in here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior that today could be the day. I pray also for all of us where we're at on our journey to the calling to make disciples in the world. Lord, will you help us not be prideful <clears throat> when we need help, ask for it. When help is available, we take it. Will you, not, will you help us not take it out? Lord, if there's anyone in here who's taken the out and it's been some time, will you encourage them to get back in the game, Lord? You called all of us to serve. We are not worthy, but you are worthy, and we are only worthy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason why we can serve you. So, Lord, will you also help us prepare and answer that question that when you do answer, if you do answer this particular calling, what would be my next step? And, Lord, please help us prepare our hearts For any attacks, Lord, let us not be discouraged. Let us ignore the evil one. Let us hold on to your promises. Lord, as we sing a couple more songs, we just are careful to give you all of the praise and glory. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.